So over the last 70 years, there's only one episode of change in the racial earnings gap, and that's in the 1960s and early 1970s, so during the civil rights movement. Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifonter. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Claire Montialou is an assistant professor at the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. She's a faculty affiliate at the Opportunity Lab and at the Institute for Research on Labor and Employment. Her research interests include topics in labor economics, political economy, and economic history. She studies policies aimed at reducing deep-rooted inequalities in the labor market. We talked about her influential work that she conducted with Elora Duranoncourt on minimum wage policies and racial earnings gap. Hi, Claire. Hi, Clementine. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. So one thing that most people don't know is that you are one of the reasons why I became an economist. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I was, I was an undergraduate student and in a general social science program, and I think you were already in grad school at the time, and you came to my class to introduce a review that you launched with some other students. And I thought, wow, she looks so cool. <laughs> and so if I managed to get to uh, this graduate program, then I could start that. And that's, that's what I managed to do. So 10 years later, I wrote a paper about role models. So who, who would have known? You were partly responsible for that. Wow, thanks, Clémentine. So I'm really happy you are here today to talk about your very important work with Elora de Renoncourt on minimum wage and racial inequality. And this topic is obviously very important and relevant today. So I wanted to start by situating the importance of racial inequality today in the U.S. and how it compares to the levels that have been experienced in the 20th century. Today, there is a 25% difference between the average annual earnings of white workers and the average annual earnings of black workers. In the 1950s and early 1960s, this difference was above 50%. Then in the 1960s and early 1970s, this difference fell to 25%. And since the mid-1970s, this difference has remained uh, stable at 25%. So over the last 70 years, there's only one episode of change in the racial earnings gap, and that's in the 1960s and early 1970s, so during the civil rights movement. And during that period of time, the racial wage gap, again, was divided by a factor of two. And what are the factors that have been put forward traditionally to explain the decline in racial inequality in this particular period? Yeah, so that the question of why, you know, the racial wage gap uh, fall in the 1960s and 1970s has been asked by many economists. And mainly there are two factors that have been put forward. The first one is the role of anti-discrimination policies. And this has been studied in a series of papers by uh, Richard Friedman in the 1970s. And the other factor that has been put forward is the 
general improvement in education among the black population. So this includes improvements in education quality and in the number of years of uh, schooling. So uh, the increasing the number of years of schooling among the black population has been in particular studied by Smith and Welsh. And the increase in the quality of schooling has been in particular studied by Card and Kruger. Now, there's also been, you know, school desegregation is also a big factor that has been put forward in the literature to explain the fall or the decline in the racial wage gap in those years. And so in your paper, you revisit the relative importance of these different factors. And in particular, you, you focus on an historical episode, which is the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1966. What is it exactly? Can you explain what's this episode? So the f in 1966, there were amendments to the 1938 Fair Labor Standards Act. The 1938 Fair Labor Standards Act introduced the minimum wage at the federal level in the United States. So that's a very important law. So not only introduced the minimum wage at the federal level, but it introduced, you know, an, an, a number of other uh, policies like regulation on overtime and so on. But one of the aspects of this 1938 FLSA is the introduction of the federal minimum wage in a number of sectors. So when it was, when the minimum wage was created in the US, Roosevelt wanted to introduce it to the whole economy, to all sectors in the economy. But he faced resistance. In particular, he faced resistance from Southern Democrats who opposed the minimum wage. And he had to compromise. And in the end, the minimum wage that was introduced in 1938 at the federal level in the U.S. only covered uh, maybe 55% of the sectors of the economy. And it's only 30 years later that President Johnson is expanding the minimum wage coverage to new sectors of the economy, agriculture, hotels, restaurants, nursing homes, hospitals, schools, and other services. And these sectors were sectors where black workers were overrepresented. So that's the reform we are looking at with uh, Elora Derinokura in this paper. And we are looking at the effect of this reform on the racial wage gap. And I want to say here that uh, this particular expansion of the minimum wage coverage was actually part of the civil rights movement. So in the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in August 1963, um, the extension of the minimum wage coverage to agriculture, hotels, restaurants, and so on, was one of the 10 demands of the civil rights uh, movement. So you explained that a certain number of, of, of industries were now covered by this legislation on minimum wage after this date. Can you explain how you use this reform to identify the impact of minimum wage on racial inequality? Yeah, so absolutely. So um, our main empirical design is to compare the evolution of wages, racial wage gaps in the industries that are newly covered. 
So again, agriculture, hotels, restaurants, where black workers were overrepresented. And that's our treatment group. So we compare the evolution of wages in this group to the evolution of wages and other outcomes in the industries that were previously covered uh, by the minimum wage. So mainly manufacturing. Uh, and this is our control group. So that's called a, a difference in differences design. And of course, uh, the main uh, assumption that we make is that absent uh, the minimum wage reform in 1967, the uh, wages and other outcomes we are looking at would have evolved the same way in the two groups. And the check we must do and that we do is to uh, make sure that before the reform, so uh, before 1967, the wages and racial wage gaps in the two types of industries are evolving in parallel. And that's, that's the case. One impressive aspect of your paper is really the data collection efforts uh, that you put in place. And you rely on historical data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Can you tell us a bit more about the different data sources you use and what are the pros and cons of combining them together? Yes, so uh, because we're, we're studying you know, a historical episode uh, of change, we had to pull together a number of data sources in this project. The data source we're referring to are establishment survey data uh, that contain detailed information on hourly wages. And that's very important here because in the current population survey data, which is the administrative data source that is commonly used to look at reforms on the labor market, we had only the information on annual earnings in the early 1960s as opposed to hourly wages. And being able to see the evolution of hourly wages is crucial when you're talking about the minimum wage. So what we did is that we digitized a thousand of hourly wage distributions contained in those old establishment surveys. And we have hourly wage distributions at a very granular level. We have them by detailed industries by gender, by occupation, and by region. So this gives us, you know, the opportunity to provide very clear graphical evidence on how the reform has lifted wages and where exactly in the early wage distribution. And it also allows us to study the employment effect of the reform. So I want to talk a bit about the, the effect on wages. Like, what is the impact that you found that the 1967 reform had on wages? So we find that the 1967 extension of the minimum wage boosted the wages uh, in the newly treated industries by about 5%, above and beyond the wage growth that is happening in the control industries. So that's a, a big effect. And what we also find is that this effect is visible in 1967. There's a sharp increase in 1967. And then this effect is permanent through the end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s. 
We also document the fact that this wage increase is concentrated among uh, low-skilled individuals, which is what you would expect uh, to see if you're really identifying the effect of the minimum wage reform. So here we were concerned, you know, that might be the case that this wage effect that we're capturing in the newly treated industries above and beyond what's happening in the control industries might be coming from, you know, another policy reform or many other things that are happening in the economy as well. But the fact that there's a sharp increase in 1967, the fact that it is concentrated among low-skilled individuals, it is concentrated in the first quartile of the pre-reform wage distribution, indicates that we're really capturing the effect of the minimum wage with this uh, design. We also find that the wage effect is twice as large among black workers as it is for uh, white workers. So black workers in the newly treated industries receive a 10% wage gain above and beyond what's happening for black workers in the control industries. And this result comes from the fact that black workers were overrepresented at the bottom of the distribution in those newly treated industries. So that's because we have this, you know, wage gain that is twice as large among black workers as it is for white. And the fact that black workers are overrepresented in the newly treated industries, these are the two forces that can explain, you know, the fact that uh, this reform has reduced the racial wage gap in those years. to the racial earning gap, you talk about the employment effect of this reform. I just wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about why is it important to look at employment effect, and especially in the context of this literature, this very large literature on minimum wage and employment. Can you tell us a bit more about what you do in your paper to address that? Yes. So once we documented, you know, large wage gains of uh, this reform, and we wanted to know whether this reform was uh, effective at advancing black economic uh, living conditions or not. Uh, because imagine a case where the reform translated into disemployment effects and in particular disemployment effects among black workers. It would have been the case that maybe this reform overall wouldn't have made the black population better off in the end. That's why, you know, this question of the employment effect of this minimum wage extension was so crucial to us. So we've used different types of data and different empirical designs to study this question, and we consistently find that this reform did not lead to a large disemployment effects. And in particular, it did not lead to large disemployment effects among black workers. La minute technique. 
So in this podcast, researchers take one minute to try to explain one technical aspect of their work. I wanted to ask you to give us maybe the intuitions behind the bunching estimation of the employment effect that you do in your paper. We talked about a little bit the Bureau of Labor Statistics industry wage reports and those early wage distributions that we have digitized. I have to say, actually, that you can go on my website and my co-author, Elora de Renoncourt's website, and you will find the data there uh, because you could actually use them for many other projects. So we have those early wage distributions in the treated industries, and we are able to look precisely at how the early wage distributions is changing from one year to the other. So in particular, we are really interested in how the early wage distribution is changing from 1966 to 1967. In the paper, we take the example of laundries in the South, where we know that 40% of the workforce was black. And we also know that it's a very low wage industry. So prior to the reform in 1963 and 1966, we have 70% of workers who are paid below $1, which is the level at which the minimum wage is introduced in 1967. And we have people who are paid as low as 40 cents an hour, 50 cents an hour. So you see, uh, it's way, 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 way below the minimum wage that is introduced in 1967. So we have this mass of workers below the minimum wage. And in 1967, we see a huge spike appearing at $1. So mass of workers are now paid at exactly $1. And we measure that it's approximately 70% of workers now that are paid at $1. So the bunching design is a way to basically compare the mass of workers who are below the minimum wage prior to the reform to the mass of workers paid at the minimum wage the year of the reform. And if those masses are the same, then it means that the reform did not lead to disemployment effects and that workers are still employed within the same sector. So that's the intuition behind this bunching design. And we've generalized it to uh, many industries, many regions, and we even in industries where the share of black workers is extremely high, we were not able to find large disemployment effects. So in your paper, you show how the extension of the minimum wage is one of the most important factors of the reduction in uh, racial inequality. And obviously, these results are really relevant to the making of structural policies even today. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the policy implications and how we th should think about this question today and what also has changed uh, in the situation compared to the 60s? Yes. So um, in the paper, we find that uh, this minimum wage extension can explain about 20% of the decline in the racial wage gap in the 1960s and 1970s. So that's not everything. We saw that uh, school desegregation, improvement in uh, education among the black population, and the passage of anti-discrimination policies was also absolutely essential to the decline of the racial wage gap. Because 
minority groups, so African Americans, but also Hispanics, uh, are still overrepresented at the minimum wage today. We know that increasing the minimum wage today would, you know, largely benefit those minority uh, groups. It would also benefit women, actually. All the state, local and federal policies that are looking at increasing the minimum wage would probably uh, disproportionately benefit to those demographic groups. And one thing that maybe has changed compared to the period that you were looking at is the differences in terms of labor force participation, right? The fact that some minorities were not actually in the labor force. Right. So in the paper, we are looking at the evolution of the racial wage gap. So that's the difference in wages between white and black workers. So we are only looking at what's happening in the labor market. If you're looking at racial income gaps, that is the difference in incomes among workers and non-workers, then you would see that the racial income gap since the 1950s has remained actually basically the same. And that's a study that's been conducted by Bayer and Charles that has shown this. In particular, what has changed is that more and more black men are out of the labor force. So that's something that started in the mid-70s or beginning in the 1980s. And of course, the second thing that has changed for black men is the increase in incarceration rates at the beginning of the 1980s. Okay, so before we wrap up, I wanted to ask if you had a particular recommendation of a book, a movie, or anything that you would like to share with our listeners. Yeah, so I particularly like The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. And it's a book about housing segregation in America. And it's digging into the history of housing segregation in America and why American cities are so segregated today. And the main argument of the book is that this large and persistent housing segregation is not due to individual preferences or income differences or the action of private real estate agencies, but rather it comes for government policies. It comes from laws that have systematically maintained black people in segregated areas. Thank you so much, Claire, for your time. Thank you so much, Clementine. It was a pleasure to talk to you today. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clementine Vanifonter in Toronto. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode. <laughs>